Uh, so we're continuing this morning. This is our second week in our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, as Chip said uh, earlier in the uh, service, we are looking at the second commandment this morning, the commandment that uh, warns us about idolatry. And this might be one that we're tempted to say, I just don't know that that's all that big of a, of a struggle. I don't have a lot of idols laying around my house. Do any of you have any carved images that you bowed down to before you came to church this morning? So we thought we'd, we'd uh, maybe toss some up there on the, on the screen. And uh, does anybody have one of those? And, and you just make sure you stop by to kind of bow down. Nope, nobody had one of those. Maybe one of those is a little bit more uh, mysterious, a little different. Not quite sure what that is. It's a likeness of, of something. We'll do one more kind of a kind of a dragon-looking kind of, kind of guy. So uh, nobody was tempted to bow down before an idol at home this morning. Huh? Okay, well, let's close a prayer and go home and enjoy our day, because well, obviously we don't have a problem with idolatry, right? Well, maybe uh, we could broaden our understanding this morning uh, of God's heart uh, in giving us this commandment, in warning us, uh, and forbidding us to, to bow down to, to anything in creation, but to give our total loyalty in our hearts to the Creator. We're going to read in Exodus chapter 20, the first six verses. Then we're going to uh, read a couple of passages uh, briefly out of the Gospels, one in Matthew's Gospel and one in Mark's Gospel. You can follow along in your Bible or on the, on the screen. Uh, the words will be there here, God's Word, Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7, this is part of Jesus' uh, very famous sermon on the mount. And he says the following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, Jesus is uh, giving a teaching where he is warning people uh, to not be like a certain group of folks. And, and the folks that he's speaking critically of are actually the religious leaders, uh, the men who were tasked with interpreting the law and helping the people understand how to apply it to their lives. So Jesus is, is speaking about those folks. And he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you this morning for your commandments. We thank you that they show us your character and your love and your compassion. Father, sometimes we misread them into thinking that you are trying to be heavy-handed or you're, you're seeking to uh, control our lives in ways that uh, are uh, rules that are hard to follow. You want to make it all about our duty. 
And Father, we pray that you would protect us from that thinking. It's very easy for us to, to cast doubt, to, to look at these words in a way that make us feel good about ourselves, but, but sit in judgment of you. Lord, as we've prayed, purify our hearts. We are a fallen and broken people. We want to love you in response to your love for us. We, we want to serve you, but we fall short. Father, we, we don't live as we ought. We forget to do certain things, and then we intentionally do other things that are harmful. So, Father, as we sit under your teaching this morning, Lord, not my words. My words are not important. It is your holy word that must break through our hearts, our defenses, our misunderstandings, our, our lack of understanding, our, 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 our lack of judgment, uh, sometimes our own self-righteousness. Lord, it's only your word that can break through all of that and bring us to a right place of worship. And fill our hearts with, with your glory, with your beauty, with your grace. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The attitudes and actions of idolatry are spiritually destructive. That's our sermon in a sentence this morning. What we want to consider, uh, maybe at a little bit deeper level than just asking whether we have any idols lying around the house that have been carved out of, out of some uh, materials, rather what is actually going on in our hearts that is so harmful to us that God would, would make sure that he included this in his word to us? Th- these words that God gave, he spoke directly to his people and for good reason. I think what we'll find is that there can be a very destructive influence in our lives and an idolatry that perhaps sometimes we don't even realize is present. Uh, let's talk definitions for just a minute, a couple of definitions for the word idolatry. The first is a worship of a physical object. Uh, as a God. So again, worshiping something in creation as if it were on the same level as the creator. That's one definition. A second definition is this, in moderate attachment or devotion to something. In other words, there's, a, there's a, an, an emotion in my heart. There's a, there's a loyalty or a, or a passion or a desire, and I put emphasis on something to a degree that is unhealthy. That is not good for me. And so that's also the definition of idolatry. And I think probably what we'll find by the end of our teaching time together is that second definition is the one that's most important for our purposes this morning as a 21st century church seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. I have four observations uh, about this text. And so let's dive in. The first is this. Idolatry makes it about me. Idolatry makes it about me. Notice how God words this verse. You shall not make for yourself. Notice he doesn't say you shall not make for your spouse. You shall not make for your children. You shall not make for your next door neighbor. He says you shall not make for yourself. Why? Because at the heart of idolatry is my self-centeredness. At the heart of idolatry is selfishness. So you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is heaven above or on the earth beneath that is water under the earth. In order to understand this, I want us to think about three words, selfish, easy, and convenient. Idolatry is always selfish. What do I mean by that? I mean that that idolatry leads me to an inward focus. The, The notion of the carved image in the day in which this law was given was a very prevalent thing. And the notion of the carved image was if I just, if I could just, you know, Keep that deity, whatever that that image represents, whatever deity that image represents. If I can keep that deity happy, it's going to go well for me. 
Not you, I don't care about you. I gotta look out for me. At the heart of idolatry is selfishness because it focuses me inward. It doesn't ask the question, what am I giving to God? How am I loving God in response to his love for me? It's asking the question, how can I get more for me? Jesus warns us against this attitude in Mark chapter 12 when he talks about the scribes. What do they, what do they love to do, serve other people? No, in fact, Jesus says they actually devour the houses of widows, meaning if you're a poor widow and you have next to nothing, all you have is a little house to live in, and the, and the scribes can figure out a way to steal that from you and get the money from it, they will. Those are the kind of folks that Jesus is, is talking about. They don't love to serve. They don't love to care for people. What do they love to do? They love to walk around in long robes. They like the greetings in the marketplace. You know, Rabbi, we're so thankful you're here. You know, come, come and sit here. They get the best seats. So, if, you know, if they're, they, they're coming to church, it's like, come on and sit down front. Or if you're a Presbyterian, you can sit in the back because that's the best seat in a Presbyterian church. And if you can get outside, it's even better. <laughs> However you define the best seat, right? But that's what they live for. The places of honor at the, at the feast. If they're at a wedding, they're right next to the bride and groom. They make all these long prayers, make a pretense of these long prayers. Idolatry turns me inward. It's selfish, but it's also easy. In the day of Moses, if you put a little plate with a few pieces of, uh, of bread or meat or fruit on it and put it in front of the, the image that you had, that, that's what you needed to do. That took care of everything. It wasn't about your behavior. As Doug Stewart says, idolatry minimizes the importance of ethical behavior. It was just about giving a little offering and then going your own way, doing whatever you like in order for you to get what you need. There's no obedience there's no sense of loyalty that's required. And quite frankly, everybody else is irrelevant. Makes it very easy for me. And then a slight nuance to easy is this notion of convenience. Notion of convenience is, is anytime, anywhere. I remember when I was, when I was a, a, a youngster, which is way back when, I remember when the, the 7-11s used to open. They don't even call them 7-11s anymore. But it's open at 7 in the morning. And it stayed open until 11 o'clock at night. And it was open on Sunday. This was astounding to me that I could get a snicker bar at a whim on any time, almost day or night. And then after about three years, what did they figure out? We're staying open 24-7. If I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I can sneak out of the house. I can go up to the now 24 and I can get whatever. The convenience of that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. How did the people of Israel turn to idol worship because one of the reasons they turned it was because of its convenience. Look at what one of the prophets says in 1 Kings when idolatry is running amok in the nation of Israel. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram. Where? On every high hill and under every green tree. It's convenient. If you read the law of Moses, you'll see that when the nation of Israel settled down in the promised land... God said to the, to the heads of the families, three times a year you will travel to Jerusalem and we'll have a feast. Three different times. Now, no big deal if you live by the, Lake of Gal the Sea of Galilee today and you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive down to Jerusalem, take you less than an hour. But in Moses' day, to stop what you were doing, and you were probably in agriculture or you were in the fishing industry or whatever, but you worked to earn your living. You had to stop what you were doing, take at least three days to get down to Jerusalem, three days to get back, and you had to stay there for a week. And you had to do that three times a year. That's not very convenient. It's much easier to worship a false god. Much easier. Idolatry makes it about me. 
I think one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, do we want to worship God or do we want God to actually worship us? Well, not only does idolatry make it all about me, but secondly, idolatry attempts to make God manageable. Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness, of anything that is in heaven above, idea of angels there, uh, or that is in the earth beneath, anything that's created, or the water under the earth, anything that would, would be living in the ocean. The idea here is that that's something that's normal, something that looks somewhat natural in form. Uh, it, it's, it's easier to, to relate to that. So uh, if you notice the images we put on the screen early on, uh, especially the first one and the third one, they look like a, a person on some level. The first one looked very much like uh, a human being. The third one had arms and legs, but it had a little bit of a dragon's head. But, but you, didn't, you didn't look at that screen and go, oh my goodness, I've never seen anything like that and I don't recognize that. I have no idea what those things are. There were some things about each of those that are common to us. You can see even that second one, there's kind of a face there. Well, when that happens, what does it do? When you can make the glorious God of the universe into an image, you bring it into a manageable space. It makes it easier for me. It makes me more comfortable. I don't have a God. I have more of a partner. I have more of a pal. And if you take it to its extreme, pantheism or naturalism, they, they simply say God's in everything. God's everywhere. And so it's, it's wrong to worship God as an individual, as a deity, because God's in this lectern. God is in this book. God is in that tree. He's in that screen. He's in that drum right there. He's, he's in everything. That certainly makes God much more manageable. Because if God is in everything and in everywhere, that leaves who in control? <laughs> that leaves me in control. It leaves you in control. It makes us the final arbiter of our moral authority. We get to decide what's best for us. Idolatry attempts to make God manageable. Because God, the God of the Bible, is a glorious God. He is a majestic God. He is an, an, an intimidating God in, in the right and good sense of the word. When Exodus chapter 20 concludes, God has finished speaking, and the people of Israel, remember, they're all standing close to Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai. They're, they're backed up a little bit, but they're having this encounter. God is speaking, and here's their reaction. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flames of the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they stood afar off. You can just kind of see the collective congregation backing up. Everybody's trying to back up. They're very, very nervous. And so they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we what? Lest we die. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I love these people's reaction. Moses, this could kill us, so you go for us. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. You know, we're behind you all the way, Moses, and that's where we're going to stay, way behind you. But you go talk to God, it'll all be good. Why? Because they were scared. Why? Because God's scary. In that sense of the word, God is awesome. God is majestic. He is not one with whom to be trifled. And, and the nation of Israel realizes that. And so this notion of, of, of having something I can control and something that looks kind of nice to me, that feels good. And yet it, it, it doesn't meet the greatest need of my soul. I need a God who is powerful. I need a God who is awesome and, and can actually transform and change my life. Today's Father's Day, by the way. Happy Father's Day to all the guys. Uh, if you've ever been in a situation where, uh, where dad... 
uh, kind of put on his awesome hat where maybe something was going wrong and he said, you know, I, I'm a nice guy, but we're definitely not going that way. We're, we're going this way. You've had that experience where it's been, uh, okay, he's dad and I'm not. Uh, my boys had to have that experience every so often when they were growing up and they got, as the old saying goes, a little too big for their britches. I remember I came in one day on a rainy day and uh, they were sitting there, Nate and Jordan were sitting there watching TV. Nate was probably in high school. Jordan was probably in sixth grade, something like that. And they're just, they were, they were having a conversation being nice. And that should have clued me in that something was terribly, terribly wrong because <laughs> they just, you know, that the boys don't act like that. And I sat down, I'm hanging out with them. I looked up at the ceiling and there's this big black mark about that long on her ceiling. And uh, I'm like, fellas, where'd that come from? Boy, were they backpedaling quick. They, you know, we're, we're not sure. And I like, I, I need to know what happened. And for whatever reason, these two young, intelligent, high school, middle school guy didn't study the laws of physics and thought they could swing a golf club in the house and it wouldn't touch the ceiling, right? So in that particular moment, dad had to say, not that way, but that way, right? Dad had to, had to kind of put on the awesome hat and say, this is important that you learn a lesson and you learn it right now. Our father in heaven loves us enough to be direct with us. He loves us the way to say, you're not going to manage me. You're not in control here. And that's for your good idolatry attempts to make God manageable. Thirdly, idolatry ignores God's passionate loyalty for his name and for his people. He says this, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, and then he brings his name back into it. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, we need to unpack that just for a moment or two, because in our day and age, jealousy is not a compliment. If I were to say, Chris, you're really a jealous guy, you probably wouldn't think I was paying you a compliment. You'd say, ah, I don't want to be a jealous guy. I don't want to be somebody that, that, that kind of holds grudges and, and, and takes things that personally and, and, and thinks poorly of other people. That's kind of the English modern day definition of jealous. But in this passage, the way the Hebrew word is constructed is it's speaking of a passionate loyalty. What God is saying is I am passionately loyal for two things. My name, I am the Lord. I'm not going to give up my name. I'm not going to, again, become your partner. I'm not going to be your little buddy. I am the Lord, the eternal God of the universe. But I am your God. I, I, I am your God. You can rest in my loyalty. In fact, how does God open up and introduce the Ten Commandments? What does he say? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God begins his discourse with his children by reminding him that he's already demonstrated this loyalty to them by rescuing them and by bringing redemption. Do we understand that that's the God that we serve? That God loves us with a fierce and abiding love that will not relinquish, that will not let go that saw Jesus go all the way to the cross so that the sins that you've committed and the sins that I have to own that are mine can be forgiven. Why? Because God's passionate loyalty to his name and to his people. I want to read for you just a, a couple of verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 10, a few verses actually, and I'm not going to put them on the screen because it's a little bit longer, but what I want you to listen for is God's action and his attitude towards his people. You're going to hear God say to his people, now, I want you to do some things, and I want you to do them a certain way, and here's why. But he also speaks of what he's done for them and his attitude towards them, and that's what I want you to, to get in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 10. I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, 
And again, Israel means what? Son of God. And now children of God. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep his commandments and his statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God. God who is not partial, he takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt." You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you all these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Do you hear the passion and faithfulness of God to care for his people? Idolatry ignores that passionate loyalty. Idolatry actually mocks that passion. It makes light of God's devotion. Have you ever done that to another person? Have you ever had a person who, who is loyal to you, who loves you, and in some way you really disregarded that? You, you, you kind of cast it aside? Have you ever hurt somebody uh, that, that deeply? Because that's a pretty painful experience. When we were at college, Cindy and I went to college together, and my birthday's in the wintertime, and uh, we went to school on Lookout Mountain down in, in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Covenant College. And in the winter there, it doesn't snow a lot, but it gets really rainy and really foggy, and it's just kind of gross in the wintertime. And my birthday came, and Cindy, unbeknownst to me, planned a scavenger hunt for me. And it was going to start at about 4 in the afternoon. It was go till 10 o'clock at night. Uh, some of you have had Mrs. Ricks, and you know how much she loves scavenger hunts. She, she puts all of her students through it now, uh, and they love it. They, they can't wait to have another one. In fact, some of her girls who just graduated last year said, can we do one more scavenger hunt before we go off to college? So she put this whole thing together for me, and I didn't know about it. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she found me. She said, I've got this scavenger hunt, and it's going to take all evening. It's going to be so much fun, and we're going to end the evening together. And I said, I don't really want to do that. I don't, I don't have time for that. That sounds kind of silly to me. I know one of my best friends over here, Bob Colette, is, wants to, he, he wants to come up and hit me in the face right now, and, and he's laughing. But that's an awful thing to, to do to somebody. That's a terrible thing to do to somebody. I, I'm embarrassed to tell you that story, but it's a true story. That's how bad a person Tom Ricks can be. Idolatry does that to our relationship with God. It says, God, I'm not interested in that. That, that cross, it's not a big deal. I, you're passionate. You know, you're kind of overplaying your hand. Why don't you just settle down just a little bit? Idolatry tends to ignore God's passion and his loyalty. And yet when I do that to another person, it actually hurts that person. But when I do it with God, it actually hurts me. It actually, it actually breaks my relationship with God. God's passion doesn't cease. God, God's not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands going, boy, I sure hope Tom likes me today. God is whole and complete and perfect in who he is and all that he is. So when I do this, I do a disservice to myself. I bring harm to myself. Idolatry ignores God's passionate loyalty. And fourthly, idolatry identifies our true 
emotions. Look at the second half of chapter 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of whom? Of those who hate me. Now, you might be sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't hate God. I, I never hate God. I, I might be indifferent towards God. I might put some other things as a higher priority than God. I mean, but God's in the mix somewhere. He's in my top 10, but there are four or five other things that are, that are more important to me that, that, that get my affections born, but I don't hate him. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't let us off the hook that easily. The Bible is God's word to us, and God loves us enough to tell us the truth. And God says, when you disregard who I am and you ignore my glory and you ignore my passionate love for you and you reject my grace and my mercy, it's an act of hatred. It's an act of rebellion. It's what our first parents did in the garden and we've been doing it ever since. Unless we be tempted to think that this verse is teaching us that, that God is punishing innocent children for the things of their parents, we need to understand very clearly that what God is saying this morning in that passage is that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, that my children tend to sin in a way that I taught them. I hate to say it, but I've taught my children to sin. I remember when Nathan, our oldest, was about four years old, and we were driving down the road, and somebody kind of cut in front of us, and he yelled out the window, hey, you so-and-so, what do you think you're doing? Learn to drive. And I looked at Cindy, and I said, see what you've taught him? <laughs> Boy, did his voice sound like his daddy's. Mm. What this passage is saying is that parents pass on to their children certain things. Some are good and some are really, really bad. And I'm not going to not punish people who disobey and reject my love and my grace. Uh, Doug Stewart, I've already quoted him once, but listen to how he unpacks this for us. I think this is very accurate and very well said. Uh, this, this notion of, of, of God's punishment it does not represent the assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for the sins of a predecessor generation. Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing to break my covenant, because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it too. Instead, God will indeed punish generation after generation if they keep doing the same sorts of sins that the prior generation did. Dad, do you think it's important that we think about that? Think it's important that we maybe just pause a little bit today at some point and go, Lord, help me be the one that teaches my children to worship. Help me be the person that moves my children away from idolatry, away from the worship of empty things and to the worship of your glory and your goodness. Generational sin is a very real thing. We would simply like to excuse it and say God is vindictive. But the facts simply are that our children are simply following the sinful patterns that we create and that we demonstrate. And idolatry shows our true emotions for what they are. And yet, as all scripture does, uh, God ends with a promise. And in this very stark, very direct commandment. God's not mincing his words here. And I understand this morning that you might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable, right? Well, I've been feeling that way all week. So welcome to the, welcome to the pain, but God doesn't leave us there. Look at what God says about, about other emotions that he recognizes. Look at the promise at the end of verse six, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you could say there who love me in return by keeping my commandments, by trusting my word. 
There's a promise here that for those who joyfully receive God's love and his grace and his mercy, those who, who reject idolatry and, and say, I want to worship God alone, God recognizes that faith in response to the grace that he has given. And he celebrates that and he endorses that. I want to I take us back to Stuart one last time. Listen to how he puts this. But to this is contrasted his real wish to show covenant loyalty to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, quote unquote. By the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, get this, this is the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, right? It's this or this, and, and, and there's nothing that comes close to this. By the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, three or four to thousands, God identified eloquently his real desire to have his people remain loyal forever so that he might in turn show them the rich blessings of his resulting loyalty to them. Idolatry identifies the true emotions of my heart. What do I do as a believer? Because idolatry can be subtle in my life. I'm not free from idolatry. I don't, I don't have any, you can come to my house. There aren't any wooden images there. You can look in every closet you want to, but trust me, we, we don't have any. But this notion of an immoderate attachment and a devotion to something other than God or above God can be very real in my life. I can make preaching an idol. How about that? <laughs> I, can, I can make the worship of God an idol in my life. That's how good I am at this. We can make idols out of our children, out of our reputation. We can make idols out of our money, out of the things that we own. Uh, you don't preach every Sunday, but maybe you can make an idol out of the, the worship style that you prefer. And you only like certain Sundays at Green Tree because it's only on those certain Sundays that, that the style fits what you like. Other days, you just soon uh, stay home maybe and just maybe uh, uh, do some, uh, some, some church on, on a podcast. Is that worship of God or is that making my preference an idol? Am I worshiping him and him alone? Or am I saying that there are other things that actually have my affections? Dare, dare the pastor say on the day after 2028 that we could even make serving others an idol that feeds our ego if we're not careful? You see, brothers and sisters, I believe that today's idolatry is very subtle. It's very hard to detect. And it is spiritually destructive. It is a sin of which, as a believer, I'll have to confess the rest of my life because I'll go back and forth, but praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. It allows me to ask the question, where are the devotions in my heart that are greater than my devotion to the Lord Jesus? What are the things that I say I can't live without? And thankfully confess those to the God who is passionate and loves me to the degree that he would, he would warn me and encourage me and challenge me. Don't put anything above me in heaven or on earth or on under the earth and watch me for a thousand generations give you my grace and my mercy and my compassion. Will you pray with me? Father, we cannot begin to get our minds around your love and your mercy and your faithfulness. Father, in some ways, uh, for those of us that have had good experiences with fathers, we, we've seen your love demonstrated to us in them. And Father, I pray for every dad in this room that we would demonstrate that love, that we would, we would uh, respond to your grace in a way that would pass it on to our children. But Father, if we're all honest, we know there, there are things that we let move in there to take your place, and we, we pray for your forgiveness. We thank you that you give it, to it through, give it to us through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we pray that this day you would help us to identify the idols in our lives, that we might set them down, that we might cast them aside, that we might turn back to you, receive your mercy and your grace, your love and your compassion. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.